Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Our podcasts come in three different formats. We have our seminar series where we listen back to presentations made at previous events. We have our 10 minute lesson series where we take a particular topic and just look at the key points we think people should know within that short time frame. And then we have our interview series where we chat to policy experts on a really wide range of topics. And I'm delighted this week that it is one of our interview series. Flakta Phelan from the Disability Federation of Ireland chats with me about the extra cost of disability, the various reports that we have done in Ireland in order to tackle this, the levels of poverty and deprivation experienced by the disabled community in Ireland, and also what the next steps should be. We hope you enjoy. Flakta, firstly, I want to say thank you very, very much. And I suppose to put it on the record, for the record, uh, we've been a long time talking about this. So <laughs> I'm very grateful for your time and that we're actually getting to do it. I'm not <laughs> so. going to um, deliver on the, the long postponement and lead over to this chat now. Just again to appreciate your time. So I'll start where I always do, which is, I suppose, to introduce yourself and the organisation you work for, the type of things that you do, the communities that you represent. Brilliant. Yeah, no, thanks a million, um, Suzanne. Thanks for the invite and also for the patience of waiting patiently while I kept push it, putting this off <laughs> for various reasons because the workload is heavy and yeah. all the rest. Yeah, the Disability Federation of Ireland is a federation of, the number keeps changing, it's 122 at the moment, but 122 disability organisations from across the length and breadth of the country. We've been around since about the 70s. And we basically bring together disability organisations all over Ireland. And something fairly unique about DFI is that we, we span all of the different disabilities. So across neurological, physical and sensory, intellectual disability and also mental health. Um, and also all of the centres for independent living across the country who are located in different cities and counties and support independent living in in the area that they work they are all members of of DFI as well so we're quite a diverse set of organizations a number of the large service providers for disability that would be quite well known so the Irish Wheelchair Association Rehab Enable Ireland etc would be members but actually the bulk of the membership of the federation is quite small to medium-sized organizations often quite niche organisations, be that looking at specific conditions like muscular dystrophy or, or cystic fibrosis, or doing community level supports in a particular area, some parents groups and community groups as well. So we're quite diverse, but we come together as a federation to join forces, pool our resources, and to advocate to the state for the full rights um, to, to move towards better implementation of the UNCRPD, so the UN Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So particularly looking at the societal barriers to disability inclusion across the country and doing policy and research work, but also community work, advocacy, member engagement and support and self-advocacy as well, working with disabled people and key workers across our membership organisation. So we've been around since the 70s. We, in particular, we do a lot of policy and advocacy through the system. And in terms of my own work, I work in the policy team and I'm particularly focused on poverty, on social protection and on the extra cost of disability. Perfect. And I suppose I just want to state as well that the language that we will be using in this conversation will flip between identity first and person first. And also disability and impairment and care and support, that type of language. Um, no, absolutely. And if you read DFI submissions, yeah. uh, you will see that, that we also flip between the two because there are quite strongly held views on, on either side. Mm -hmm. there, there are some people who really strongly prefer to be uh, to be called a disabled person. And then there, there are other sets of people out in the community who, who prefer people with disabilities as a term. So we tend to, to, to switch between the two um, to, to make sure that we're using the, the most inclusive language and we're respecting the views of different parts of the community. Brilliant. So I want to pick up on that poverty piece. So 
I don't have stats because the we are due to have new statistics from our central statistics office here in Ireland, hopefully next month. And I'm conscious as well, like it kind of it'll date this particular episode when obviously the, the issue we're looking at is, a, is an ongoing issue. But in general, people with disabilities, households where somebody is a disabled person are at higher risk of poverty. And it, that that's what you, I presume that's what you see in your work. Absolutely. And, and I suppose the specifics of the numbers, sometimes they go up a little bit, sometimes they go down a little bit or, or what have you. But you'll find that consistently the trend over decades is that disabled people are substantially more likely to live in consistent poverty, to be at risk of poverty and to live in deprivation. So to some extent, OK, we get the update in February mm-hmm. and we might see this figure go down or this figure go up a little bit point this percent or what have you but but the basic thing is that if you are born with an impairment or if you acquire acquire a disability during working age or at any point that means that you're much more likely to live um, in poverty and struggle to pay the bills and be able to afford what it is that you you need to live and we'll come on to some of the reasons for that but I think it is important to note like how big that gap is as well Mm -hmm. so if you look at last year's poverty statistics so they were released in 23 but they relate to 2022 you will see that people who are unable to work because of a long-standing health condition which is the technical term that is used so we put brackets disability so it's specifically a subset of people i suppose who who aren't able to work because of disability because there are many disabled people out about working in the community as well they have consistent poverty rates of one in five, 19.7%. And that is four times higher than the average for the population. So simply having a disability means that you're much more likely to live with economic vulnerability throughout your life. And it's not just that. So the deprivation statistics show something similar. For the national average, you have about one in five people living in deprivation. But for people who can't work because of their disability, that rises to one in one in two, 44.3%. So the gap is really, really huge and it's not getting any better. Mm. And we're living at a time when we are saying that we're working on our poverty, that we're committed to reducing our poverty. And we're also living at a time, as you know well, that we have unprecedented budget resources available to us and we have poverty reduction targets written down in certain social policy documents that I think we'll talk about as well. But it's not getting better. And in fact, if you I know you know this probably, but the ESRI analysis of the budget 2024, which, you know, the budget that governs this year that we're, we're now in, shows that if you discount the one off benefits that we gave, to people to 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 kind of on the cost of living that the long term implications of budget twenty twenty four actually lead to an increase in poverty mm-hmm. for disabled people because the other tweaks that we made around um tax etc are permanent for those who are in employment but those who are relying on social protection those who are most vulnerable find that their their income hasn't been keeping pace with inflation so they're they're going to be more at risk of poverty we're also a complete outlier at eu level on this as well which is quite striking because again on a lot of social indicators in the eu obviously because of our economy the size of our country the level of development etc we perform at mid mid table or 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 we rank quite highly but on disability poverty we rank 24th out of the EU 27. And our poverty rates are about 10% higher than the EU average. So that's quite shocking, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's shocking, or yeah, because you kind of say to yourself, yeah, I'm not surprised, but I am surprised. But I suppose if if the government or, well, if governments or if policy, anti-poverty prevention measures are geared around job activation, that's the difficult piece really isn't it is that if you are if you have a large cohort and it is quite a large cohort in this country of people who are unable to work because of an impairment or a long-standing illness or a disability that there's no option for many of these people to enter paid employment there's no option for them to enter well-paid employment 
And so there's a gap there, I think, because usually when you have a conversation about social welfare rates, the first thing you get told is, well, why don't these people just go out and get a job? And you're there going, well, it's maybe slightly more complicated than that. But when you talk about sort of disability allowance and, and the benefits or the payments that go to people who are unable to work, they're set at the same level, which means that you're, and again, no matter what tool we use, be it the minimum essential standard of living, be it the Insolvency Service of Ireland's reasonable living expenses, if we look at any, any sort of income adequacy tool social welfare isn't enough to provide for the basics anyway. So you're condemned to a life of poverty if you're unable to work and if you're in receipt of these payments. Yes, um, I have lots of points to make. <laughs> Go. <laughs> um, so unemployment, again, like it's really important to note, okay, there's a mantra, isn't it? The best route out of poverty is employment. And we yeah. get that a lot. And I have lots of problems with that yeah. um but taking it at face value and starting we um we hear at the moment that we're at full employment yeah. right we know that that's a kind of common term but again um if you look at the eu indicators ireland is a complete outlier in terms of its levels of disability employment right so the eu average across the eu is about 50 percent of people with disabilities um are in employment and we're at about 31 32 percent so we're way, way lower. So we're not, there, there are a number of disabled people out there who are working sometimes to great challenges. And we might like, I, I know disabled people who are working and might ostensibly appear to be earning well. Mm. But when you factor in the extra costs of, of, of being disabled, actually they're not earning as well as you would think they are because they're paying a hundred euro a week on taxis because yeah can't get to work any other way and so if you compare that against somebody who doesn't have that need that 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 extra cost they're actually subsidizing um you know the 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 state by or they're absorbing that cost and it means that they're earning a lot less than you would think they are but we're we're not doing enough to support the people who do want to work mm -hmm. are able to work would like to work one of the positive stories around disability, if, if you look at the broader trends, is that we see much higher levels of, of education and much higher numbers of students with disabilities registered in third level institutions and making their way through the system. So we're starting to see change at that level. When they come out the other side, the supports that they need to transition into the workforce aren't there. So the personal assistance service hours, the supports on those extra costs, the accessible transport, the right to remote work, whatever it may be. So we're not doing enough to support the people with disabilities who would like to work and have the capacity to work. And and that and the risk sometimes of coming off some of the benefits because maybe you might lose your medical card or or again, I know somebody who who so you can hold on to your free travel for five years after you you start working but ultimately five years in you, that moment will will come and it has been raised with us somebody recently who is at that five-year point and just got told your free travel is cancelled yeah. so suddenly they have to pay for their own trains up to dublin and for their pa every day that they have to travel for work so that's one bit right yeah. that's the important bit but the second point is there are there's a significant cohort of um people with disabilities across Ireland who will never be able to work, mm -hmm. whether they would want to or not, because of the kind of impairment um, or condition that they're living with. It's not physically possible for them to work. And it is just completely unacceptable that we would condemn those people to poverty and a, and a life of eking out and not being able to afford a cup of coffee to go and meet your friend because of that that fact mm. and yet that's what's happening at the moment because imagine like one in two um, living in deprivation so that means you know not able to keep your house warm not able to afford a good meal every second day so for those people who aren't able to work um as you say we're just it, the the provision that's there is is completely inadequate we know as you said that even for people who don't have extra costs associated with, with the disability, that 
the current social protection amount is is inadequate. It hasn't kept up with the inflation. It doesn't cover the basic essentials, have any kind of a dignified life. But if you add the extra cost of disability on top of that, and the state basically expects disabled individuals and their families and their partners, whoever they're living with, to absorb those costs. And, and that leads to all of those families kind of living impoverished lives because of this. So it's the fact that disability allowance is the same amount as job seekers is is ju just really problematic given that, and we're coming on to this, there's a very extensive government report at this stage that shows the myriad of extra costs that disabled people live with. So we don't, we can't, we can't question the fact of, of the extra cost of the disability or that it's a very significant cost to, to people's weekly budgets. Just a good to pick up on that. I know somebody who um, was absolutely terrified, terrified accepting a full-time, reasonably well-paid job because exactly that. They were so worried about losing whatever support structures that they had and if the job didn't work out, how long was it going to take to reinstate all of these supports? So, you know, they, like they, they thought long and hard about do I do I make the jump into full time paid employment, which is not that doesn't make sense if the policies are to get us all up early in the morning and out to work that people would have to seriously consider whether this is the best move for them. That's the decision that mm. so many disabled people across the country have been living with, you know, for decades. And the risk is really high mm. in terms of while the the level of support that you get is really meager and inadequate, there's a predictability to it. You know that it's coming in every week and there's a set of related benefits and provisions in the system. And the risk of coming off all of that and having to reapply or feeling like the potential, like you might be cut off from certain supports or qualifying for certain things on top of that, et cetera, is just really high. And and it's shocking and, and it shouldn't be like that. Mm -hmm. And and if you look back at historical recommendations, like the the there are recommendations on cost of disability going back decades mm -hmm. that say that regardless of whether people are employed or not employed, they should be receiving support from the state on the extra costs that they that they live with. Um, Is that the best place for us to start then maybe that 1996 report? Yeah, the, the Commission on the Status of People with Disabilities was established in the early 90s and made a fairly extensive report in 1996. And if you look at the report, it recommends, I don't know, I don't know because I, <laughs> I was in school in 1996. <laughs> So I don't know the longer history of this, but I believe it may be the first time at which it, the concept of the cost of disability payment was kind of articulated in the system here in Ireland. And it argues for uh, a cost of disability payment for all people who, who live with extra costs, regardless of age and regardless of employment status, kind of acknowledging that piece mm -hmm. around the person having to spend 100 euros a week on taxi fares. And yet... And it's funny looking at the report again, kind of depressing in a way, because you see so many of the issues that we are still battling for here in 2024 were being so extensively outlined almost 30 years ago. So it's concerning that we've been debating this one for this long or 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 that the state has been kicking the can down the road because it, there were a lot of very progressive recommendations made in that report and it does seem to rely to pick up a point you made earlier it does seem to rely on the fact that we love our families and that obviously we want to care for our family members and we've relied on a lot of unpaid care so at no stage i know because one of the recommendations they have is to look at carers allowances but like at no stage does any carers allowance probably anywhere actually reflect the cost of care so no. Not. And, you know, Family Carers Ireland have a figure mm -hmm. that I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's billions, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's billions that Family Carers save the state every every year. If you were to kind of 
quantify and monetize the the amount of service and and if you were to require that of the health and social care system instead they're not doing it from a financial point of view but it is uh, and also again like if you if you break down carers allowance and think about what it is relative to the minimum wage compared to um the amount of hours that that people are caring for their family members so it's like we're kind of trading as a state on as you say on people's love for their family members biological or otherwise because yeah. i think they have a much broader definition of the family as well not to bring us into other debates <laughs> um, but, uh, that, that'll be an episode later on in the year yeah, we'll, 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 we'll see how that pans out yeah so we just kind of build in but uh, the fact that that the family members are not going to and it, you know when you when you read over and over again like the national advocacy services case book comes out or if you read the pre-budget submissions of our members yeah. you'll see again and again that people with disabilities when they're when they're asked about their financial situation by the organization that supports them or gives them services or or those community programs that they so many of them say i can't pay my electricity bills my mom has to help me out i run out of money to buy the weekly shop so if it weren't for my sister being down the road or whatever, I just wouldn't be able to get by. And it's, yeah. I mean, to pick up on something you said earlier on, like we have we have extensive budget resources. And I often think as well, like the, there's, there's a cost to this in the sense that uh, people who don't feed themselves adequately and can't warm their houses adequately, it's absolutely freezing today. Like it's it's the afternoon and I just still see white frost on a lot of the, the roofs around um, looking at my window here. So it's really, really, really cold today. That has health implications. So if you've already got a, a condition maybe that might be exacerbated by by poor living conditions or frailty, as you said, like a lot of a lot of us will acquire a disability because we're simply living longer. So, which is a great thing. Like, it's brilliant that, you know, more and more and more of us will be into our 80s, into our 90s. And anybody young listening to this is probably going to live to be 100. But that will come with health issues. So there is a cost to the health service. If the Department of Social Protection, I keep saying, if the Department of Social Protection don't cover adequate basic social welfare payments to allow people to stay fed and warm, that will show up in, we talk about we, a trolley crisis. Anybody who's not listening to this in Ireland can Google it. We, you know, we'll talk about these trolley crises every every January, every December, where our health system isn't able to deal with the amount of people who have to turn up at A&E for conditions where they probably wouldn't normally have to go to A&E, but they've got nowhere else to go. And frailty, I think, is, is, a, is a really, really key piece of that. And I mean, to go back to that commission, I have a cut and paste kind of a couple of bits from it. But I mean, they state here that the cost of disability payment is designed to facilitate participation. And that's a that's a key thing for us here in Social Justice Ireland is that if the disabled community is, if they are to participate on an equal footing, the extra costs that they incur shouldn't be borne by them alone. You know, that that's our that's our social contract is, is exactly that. So, I mean, the Indicom report then was commissioned to look at exactly, well, how much should a cost of disability payment be? And we probably need to, to what would you call it, kind of state again that this report is the figures in terms of the inflation that we've seen for the last couple of years are probably definitely out of date um, and would need to be revised quite dramatically yeah. upwards. Well, a couple of things, just going back to your um, trolley crisis, Point and the costs to the healthcare system, and I, I know you know, like um, Saint Vincent de Paul did a really interesting mm-hmm. report there, a number of well, not two three years ago on on the cost to the state of poverty, you know, because, uh, in the context of the cost benefit analysis and and the argument that we always get from the state who says, oh well, we have meager resources, so we couldn't possibly increase social protection to the to the minimum essential standard of living because do you know how much that would cost now we could get into other budgetary debates there in terms of where does the state draw its resources and what is its you know taxation policy and others but let's not even go down that rabbit hole but um 
I think the point you make is really true because the problem often is that individual issues are seen individually and there's no joining the dots across the area. So if the cost is to the health service, then the Department of Social Protection isn't responsible for that. And yet there's a huge interconnection. Like one of the issues that, that, that comes up a lot around disability is you can't just put it in one departmental box or one policy box. It's always cross-running. And that creates challenges. But on the on the the deprivation thing, I think it like important to notice that it, that it's getting much worse. So the the deprivation indicators around not being able to keep your home adequately warm and going without heating in the past year, they increased by about ten percent between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty two for people with disabilities. And that's really concerning because the idea of somebody who already is living with a set of, of difficulties. I know one of our members, Polio Survivors Ireland, um, they've done some really good work highlighting energy poverty issues as well. And because of the, a, a lot of conditions also mean that heat and temperature can impact on your body a lot more intensely. Yeah. The polio survivors have have a problem with heat and they need to keep the heat on them and they need to stay warm and that's just essential to to live and yet there aren't sufficient supports in the system around that and and we know that there's a fuel allowance but only 50 percent of people who are in receipt of disability payments get that because it depends on who else is in your household and other kind of things so that's a really big issue on the specifics on the participation you're 100 percent right like just the absolute basics of, of being able to um and and I hear from uh, I get emails from individuals out in the community fairly often kind of telling me about the difficulties or or even outlining how much they struggle with their budget and and things that that we take utterly for granted like I said earlier on like just being able to afford a cup of coffee and go out and meet your friends like disabled people write to me regularly saying I can't do that. I can't afford to do that. And it leads to a level of social exclusion and loneliness that is profound. And it's just unjust. Coming on to the Indicon report, I suppose, yeah, this is the the, the latest iteration of the discussion that has been ongoing you know, since the 90s and probably long before that as well, around the extra cost of disability. So... This is something that disability organizations, in, um, individuals, the, the movement had been advocating for policy change. And so the Department of Social Protection under the previous minister, Regina Doherty, decided that what they would do was commission a report on the extra cost of disability. It was quite an elaborate and time consuming process. It took about a year, year and a half to be done. There was a level of consultation with disability organizations in particular on, and one of the things that is really interesting about the report and quite unique about it, in, even in the international context, as far as I can understand, is that they did the standard kind of econometric, I can never say that word properly, econometric. Uh, they did all the modeling, looking at international literature and others. There's a small body of work in, in Ireland as well, but they also surveyed, they sent out a questionnaire to a sample, I can't remember what the sample number was, but they sent out thousands of questionnaires in the post to people who are in receipt of disability payments. There was a, a lot of back and forth with disability organizations around the survey, and we kind of helped to hone and suggest other questions and things that were kind of not in there in the original draft and so on. And it was quite an elaborate questionnaire. And Indicon, the company that were uh, contracted by the department to do it we're aiming for a thousand responses that would be statistically kind of useful for them or, or whatever the technical term for that is but they ended up getting more than four thousand responses in the end of the survey which was much higher than they expected which was also part of the reason that i think it took more time to publish the report than they expected but it does mean they have really useful and interesting data based on feedback from 4,000 people across the country who are in receipt of social protection payments. And I just think that really, really, really highlights the strength of feeling on this. I mean, how many, most of us don't fill in 
forms or as you said surveys i mean i might start a survey monkey and then i get halfway through and i go and go oh and i'll switch it off because <laughs> i just think oh you've asked too many questions now you got my name and my date of birth and my you know my, my gender and now like we're you know we're, we're 18 pages into this so for for people to actually complete a survey is in and of itself a triumph but that just goes to show just how strong and just how important I suppose that these participants felt oh, that this right. work was. Like, it was it was a long survey yeah we, many of us made it longer by suggesting <laughs> as well you know yeah. it didn't end up being as long but I suppose if you're going to do this exercise it, yes. it's important to do it and do it right and so it asked about so many different aspects of, of things and and yes like it would have required significant commitment mm. from anybody to fill it out because it, it was physically long you're talking god i should have checked what i'd say it was at least 10 pages long wow yeah but it's really valuable rich mm. data and that's actually one thing about the report i would say i don't think any of us are using it as much as we should because there's a lot of data in it also on how what services from the state people are are accessing like my focus is is particularly on social protection and mm -hmm. poverty what it is that we need to do to to address the income issue but you also have to look at the gaps in services and supports that are there whether people are having to pay privately for services because they can't get them in the state system and so on and so there's really useful and interesting information in there to to drill down into but ultimately, it concludes no surprises to any of us who worked on this for, for any period of time. But it's useful to have the report to say it. And it's worth saying the report is over 150 pages long yeah. for people who don't <laughs> haven't had the pleasure of reading the Indicon report. So it's over 150 pages long, very comprehensive, a lot of evidence. But it does conclude, as we have been saying for a long time, that people with disabilities live with substantial extra costs. And those costs are not currently addressed by the social protection system or by other aspects of the system that might address that. Because, as we said earlier on, it's not just one department that kind of is responsible for that. And it gives a range of the average range across the sample that they looked at based on the 4000 people plus who were surveyed and the econometric analysis and academic stuff based on other kind of using data from the CSO and others. So the range fell at 8,700 to 12,300 euros a year on average extra costs. Now, there's a couple of points, as you said, inflation, I'll come back to that. Yeah. But at the basic level, um, you can see that somebody's entire disability allowance could go on covering their extra disability related costs and they would have literally nothing left to pay for all of the other costs of living that everybody has when they don't have a disability so the inadequacy of what we're giving to people is very strongly exposed by the report i suppose in terms of the basic figures and stats but as you were saying there's also i think it's very important that we the, the report was published at the end of 2021. So it is two years since the report has been published. And we might think about what has and hasn't been done since mm -hmm. then. But it's based, the survey itself was done in 2020. So we know that there has been really significant inflation over that period, unprecedented in more than three, you know, three decades or mm -hmm. so. So you could, the minimum essential standard of living puts the level of inflation at 19%. The consumer price index puts the aggregated inflation from, you know, 20 to 23 at 15%. So actually that figure that we're using, the range of 8,700 to 12,300, it's out of date already. It's underestimating the extra cost of the disability and Indicon themselves confirmed that because they did speak at a recent event in November that the Department of Social Protection ran. And there was a question from the audience. Actually, I've been asking the department about this for a while myself as well. But 
they did say absolutely it's very clear that there's been a significant level of inflation so i ran the numbers earlier on to see what my range would be if i were to put so 15 percent inflation inflation would give us a range of just on just over 10,000 to 14,000 and 19% would again bring that up a bit higher. And of course, the core social protection rates haven't increased to match that level of inflation. So at the basic level, we're not doing enough about it and we're not doing enough about the extra costs that disabled people have as well. But I suppose just to put it into context for anybody who's not familiar with social welfare rates and especially maybe not familiar with social welfare rates in Ireland at this particular moment in time, as of January, the basic payment on a, a per week is 232. And if you have said like if the upper end of the cost was 12,300 and that's before we add in. So this is the extra cost that you incur yeah. is 236 a week. So if you were to provide an adequate payment that covers the basics, the heat, the light, the TV license, your transport, your phone, all of that, add on that upper end of 12,300, which is the extra cost, which as you said is, is extra transport costs, is extra maybe, you know, particular sanitary where the cost of charging up electric equipment that you might need for breathing or for mobility, um, all of that, uh, any sort of aids, any therapies, like that requires a payment of 468 a week. And that still probably doesn't keep somebody from poverty because that is, they're two inadequate payments um, added together to still probably not. So it just goes to show, and, and I think that's the thing, like if, the, if you know if your outgoings don't keep in line with your income or vice versa you're having to go without you're simply having to go without you're having we talk about making choices and making decisions but you you don't really have a choice you are having to go without essentials and that has an impact as you said be it on your physical health your mental health your social inclusion your educational attainment levels your ability to take up work but like those figures are quite extraordinary really aren't they like the gap, as you said, that gap is, you know, we're not talking a 40 euro gap or, and I know when we put in traditionally in social justice Ireland, we, you know, when we call for an extra cost of disability a payment, it was always within that sort of 20 to 40 euro a week because you've got to start somewhere. But even that is wholly inadequate. I mean, yeah, um, a couple of things, of course. First, yeah, we kind of jumped into the discussion without defining or talking about the extra cost of disability. And that's probably like partly because we're both quite familiar with the territory and stuff. But it is probably good to, to go back and say, wait, what is that for if you're not as um, familiar with it? So, I mean, we've given some examples throughout mm. the discussion, but it, essentially because of the fact that we have quite an inaccessible society out there, there are a bunch of barriers that exist out and about in the world that mean that disabled people often have to pay more to have the same access to the world that other people take for granted you know so it can be having to have uh, an adaptation made to your house to make it accessible for you say if you acquire a disability during your lifetime and then you have to change up the layout of your house you become a wheelchair user you may have to pay extra for transport, be that taxis. You might need a PA to come with you and be, be covering the costs of that. Personal assistance services themselves as well, because there's a very, very low level of availability for people out. And this relates to work as well. Like it, it, for many people, they, they want to work, but, but they don't have personal assistance services available to them. We do have a slowly increasing budget every year, but if you break down the amount of new hours it means for people, it's very minimal. There's a huge level of unmet need out there for, for PA services. Um, then there's also, you think of the polio survivor who has to use substantially more heat at home than, than the average because of that, or you have people who have quite high-tech equipment mm -hmm. so some people need a number of machines just to breathe at home because of the condition that they're living with and those can be quite heavy heavily draining on on your electricity so people with disabilities have 
the Indicon report shows this itself um, based on a lot of CSO data as well. They, they, they have at least 10% higher electricity bills are much more likely to be in utility areas as well. And these are very, this is based on quite old data as well. So I, I, I expect that this is much higher. There's also, as you said, costs that relate to kind of healthcare or personal care needs. So if somebody is incontinent and they, 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 they need extra supports, they have to pay for extra bins in the case of a, a mother caring for their kids, this comes up a lot where they kind of, they have extra needs for, for waste uh, disposal and extra costs there. So there's just a huge range of areas. And then there's also the issue of services. So I, I think one thing in fairness to the Department of Social Protection as well, it, it, this isn't only an income issue. It's mm -hmm. also about gaps in public services and huge swathes of public services that aren't delivering for disabled people in terms of be it accessible transport. Another issue is housing. Again, there's a huge lack of, of suitable housing available in the private rental sector for people who can afford. And the disability housing waiting list is reducing at half the rate of the general housing list because there aren't enough fully accessible, suitable houses being built or available in the social housing stock. So that is really important. Another thing, just before I forget it, because it came into my mind, another thing that the Intercom report does, and this was the point that the, a number of us made actually on the survey originally, it also gives an estimate of the unaffordable extra costs that people have. Right. So you that sounds a bit contradictory, doesn't it? But we were saying there's a set of things that people just don't buy or don't pay for. Like they just, it's automatically, they build into their budget the fact that I can't afford that. Mm -hmm. um, so they go without, as you're saying. So sometimes it's essentials like food. So there was a question in the survey saying, what are the costs that you of things that you can't afford, unaffordable extra costs. And that figure is 2,700 as well <laughs> on top of that. That might just be a haircut when you need it. Um, a car, because yeah. you need your car to be adapted. And so you don't get the regular price of the market because you have to spend a substantial amount above that to get it adapted so that you can drive it or whatever. So you just won't have a car. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not financially viable because of those extra costs. So that is a huge issue. In terms of the inadequacy of supports, like it's, it, yeah, I don't even know what to say about it in some mm -hmm. ways. It, when you lay out the figures, and you said that as well, like I, our ask on cost of disability in our budget has been really quite meager mm -hmm. years because it was about a starting point yeah in the system and because part of the challenge in fairness for policymakers as well is there isn't it's not a one-size-fits-all thing yeah. as well. like there there are some people out in the community have much higher costs like our member ms ireland has done interesting work on the cost of ms and like the costs for moderate to severe ms range from Sixty thousand a year to one hundred and twenty thousand a year. So wow, much higher depending on the kind of condition you have, the severity of it, etc. And there are some people out there who who are living with a disability but don't have too many extra costs. Mm -hmm. But what we're getting is the average, of course. But I we had an intern working with us over the summer, and I got her to do a little piece of historical digging for me. So she went back through all of DFY's pre-budget submissions since 2005, which is what we kind of had on the website, just to track what our ask was around cost of disability. And what I hadn't realized, but I discovered from this because I I, I haven't been working in DFI for two decades, um, was that in, in 2005, so almost 20 years ago, our ask on cost of disability was a 40 euro a week cost of disability. Wow, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and I, actually, I, if you track it, you see, the cost of disability ask disappeared during the austerity years because okay. it wasn't viable. Yeah. And then it comes back as a 20 euro payment. Mm -hmm. And then last year I was able to um I was able to get our, our, our ask back up to 40 mm -hmm. euro. But it's and extraordinary, I suppose, as you said, part of it is just trying to bring the concept to the table. Yeah. And to get acceptance of the concept. 
it's funny, isn't it? That you said, like, you can't even ask for, you feel like you can't ask for, because I, I know when we're doing pre-budget submissions, you're trying to be realistic and all that. And you're kind of going, hang on a second. You know, just because, uh, yeah, I mean, 40 isn't realistic regardless. But at the same time, to, to feel that we can't ask for more than that, because that's a definite no. It's a real disservice, isn't it? To... It is. And, and like, you, you know yourself, the, the discussion happened we had a really interesting discussion in this country in 2020 when COVID struck mm. and we had a, uh, you know, an unexpected overnight kind of scenario where very significant swathes of the population didn't expect to lose their job. And suddenly we're on, we're having to reply on, re- rely on the, yeah. the, the social protection payments to survive. And it was really interesting interesting is the wrong word but for the disability community it was actually quite enraging right because for a long time we have been pointing out the inadequacy of basic payment at that stage it was 203 euros a week and yet suddenly when a lot of the population was going to have to rely on that to pay their mortgage and their bills and their heating and what have you it it became clear that it wasn't politically viable to expect people to live on that and the PUP the pandemic unemployment payment was set at a much higher level of 350 euros a week now when you talk to the department of social protection they have a very clear argument around why they picked that figure and uh, a logic around it and that one could debate (laughs) one way or the Mm. other but but from a political point of view it was very clear as you followed the the public and political discourse that it became a political issue and a call was also taken there. But you couldn't expect people to live on 203 years a week. And yet um, disabled members of the community were being expected to live on that for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. it was very much a conversation about, well, those people over there are different to these people over here and they have different needs and should they're used to it and et cetera, et cetera. I think the real, I, I, don't, I don't know whether some people maybe who have been fortunate enough to never have been unemployed, maybe there isn't a realisation of, of what's actually involved in getting a social welfare payment. Um, it doesn't seem to have shifted our thinking, whatever, that elastic snapped back pretty quickly. It didn't, yeah. it didn't last. Uh, so when you go back to discussing income adequacy and the adequacy of social welfare payments, you keep coming up to this, like we have limited resources sort of conversation as opposed to sort of saying, well, what do people need? If people are reliant as part of our social contract, if people are reliant on a payment from the state because they are unable to work or unable to find work, what does that payment do? What do we expect it to do? And it and shouldn't... what standard of living can what yeah. member of society expect? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's the key thing as well about the MESL, the minimum essential standard of living, that... Is, is always reiterated every time it's discussed. This is not a basic basket of goods for those people over there. This is a basic basket of goods for everybody. And, and I think that's really, really key. I think when we when we have those sort of just discussions about, well, how much is enough? But it, it's interesting that you suppose you touch on the services piece because the and extra costs of living are like a reduction in income. But if you could make you could make an argument that you wouldn't need to have as high a payment if you had genuinely accessible, affordable transport, if you had affordable, secure, safe housing, if you had, you know, if you had uh, support in the health system for, as you said, PA hours, if you had maybe, you know, subsidised some of the equipment that people need. So if the services were adequate, because again, this is what you get as well, it's like, well, it, it can't always be up to the Department of Social Protection to be providing these income supports. You're kind of going, well, until the services come into play, you've really got no choice. But it, it would, you know, that would go in a long, long, long way if somebody had a reliable bus route that was wheelchair accessible, that they could get in and out of uh, under their own steam um, at an affordable rate from home somewhere that's warm and safe and secure that's again fully wheelchair accessible those things that people are having to go without would surely be reduced it would be a completely different conversation if society kind of just shifted its lens a little bit 
completely. There are a number of different disability organizations and also disability umbrella groups because there's different sets of um, organizations and perspectives and what have you. But we, we coordinate through something called the Oireachtas Disability Group. So we coordinate our kind of political advocacy into the Oireachtas there. And so all of the umbrellas come together with six different members of that. And we do advocacy into the Oireachtas around disability. And one of the things that the Oireachtas Disability Group has been calling for since, since the Indicon report was published is there needs to be a kind of comprehensive action plan around cost of disability. Because as you say, the Department of Social Protection is correct that it's not just income. Now, I come back and say it is also income and it has to be income and we'll come back to yeah. that. But the the language that we get out of government and from, from the department is also this needs a whole of government approach. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree because it does need, as you say, the health service, health service and housing need to coordinate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's a huge amount of, of work that can be done around services to support. And then the income piece isn't as essential or as much of an issue. And I think that is really important. And it's kind of concerning that that the report is more than two years published now. And we have a kind of lukewarm commitment in the new revised version of the Roadmap for Social Inclusion that says, you know, we can look at the things that need to happen across different departments to do something. The Department of Social Protection has produced a green paper and we're probably not going to go into that in great detail, I think, at this stage, because we're already getting it <laughs> up our time, but we can always yeah. go back and do it. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so there is some response. There'd be a strong critique of what is in the green paper, whether it really does deal with the income adequacy piece. But there were there were a couple of other things I wanted to say, just chipping off some things that you said. One is... So we do have a there, there is a commitment. We do have a set of poverty commitments mm -hmm. in the roadmap for social inclusion, which is our kind of core poverty reduction strategy. And ironically enough, like that strategy aims to get consistent poverty on average in the population down from about it's about five percent now, give or take. Correct me if I'm wrong, down to two percent. And I told you earlier on for um, people who can't work because of their disability, it's 19.7%. So you can see the level of change that needs to happen there. But that question of what standard of living is each person entitled to. So one of the things that's really good about the roadmap is certainly for the first time in a long time, there's a very specific target for poverty reduction for that cohort of people for um. For people who can't work because of their disability and a numerical target that by 2025 we were supposed to um, reduce our poverty to something around 28 percent or something i don't have the exact figure off the top of my head now and then by 2028 we were going to reduce it further we are we are we are going in the opposite direction it's getting worse it's not yeah. getting better but also i think it's fundamentally problematic actually to build a strategy where you say for this economically vulnerable group of people should we we'll just we'll try and reduce poverty a bit like we should have the same poverty reduction target for all members of society shouldn't we it's like it's just accepted that um people with disabilities are going to live in poverty and it's very unfortunate but that's just like that we can build that we can develop a strategy for social inclusion that has an overall target of poverty reduction, but then a, a much less ambitious target for disabled people because the levels are so much higher. Now, yeah. that said, it was really welcome because it's the first target that's there and we can hold them to it. And we keep pointing out how far off track they are. We don't see much sign of, of things changing. And I suppose one of the important points to make here, I think, and I don't know if I, I want to hold this in some ways for the end as well, but is like there there is actually significant popular support and support in the Oireachtas in our political representatives to tackle this. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like it feels like it's been accepted as just an unfortunate circumstance that we have to 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 live with, you know, and we'll give a five or this year or we'll yeah. give twelve euro this year, but we're never actually going to really meaningfully um engage with it. But there's a huge amount of popular support for for addressing this. So the Citizens Assembly 
on gender equality had a whole session on care and they also looked at disability because what about the people who have to rely on care do they want to have to rely on their family members for care maybe they might want personal assistance and independent living rather than kind of being set in this difficult situation where their family members haven't cared for them so the citizens assembly made a huge set of recommendations that are really important and progressive and they themselves said that disabled people should everybody who relies on social protection but disabled people in particular should have social protection that that gives them a dignified standard of living and an adequate standard of living and they also said which i always point out and i think is really important they were asked would you pay more taxes to support this okay these are your recommendations but there are budgetary implications and 96 percent of them said yeah according to means according to means so you know those who can't afford to pay more can't afford but they all said we're willing to pay more to make a recommend, you know, to make a reality of the recommendations that we're making here. I think that's really important to remember. The ESRI did some survey on disability attitudes earlier this year as well, and and it shows again that about sixty six percent of people were in support of more support for people with disabilities around the cost of living and so on. And the Oireachtas members, numerous committees, so the Disability Matters Committee the Social Protection Committee and the committee that worked looking at the Citizens' Assembly gender equality recommendations, they have all said there needs to be a cost of disability payment. And they've all said we need to have the minimum essential standard of living as our as our benchmark for social protection for people. So, and those are all committees that have cross-party uh, representation, obviously. So the will is there the population want this to be dealt with they're not in favor of, of the way we're going about things and and Oireachtas members are in support of it as well so it's important to hold on to that as well yeah. because i think it can feel like just a very upsetting and frustrating kind of structural injustice that isn't ever being addressed but there is a huge mandate for this to change and the government can make different choices, as we know. That's it. I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing preordained. There's nothing natural. There's nothing, well, that's just the way it is. Everything is as a result of decisions that, like, when you look, say, at our, at our housing system now, that's definitely as a result of decisions that were made in the 70s and 80s. That's where we are now. So we can do things differently. And when you talk about anti-poverty targets, we have a target of... Uh, to eradicate poverty in all its forms everywhere as part of the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. And that concept, this is where I kind of go back to as well, like the concept there is the four was behind forced. So rather than, as you said, a target of 2%, and sure if we can get a few disabled people out of poverty, that'd be brilliant. Looking at who's furthest behind, looking at those cohorts that are more at risk of being in poverty and actually starting there, rather than tinkering around the edges would make huge, huge, huge difference. And it would probably be easier to reach a target there. But the roadmap for social inclusion as well, one thing that stood out to me, and I think they fixed it since, I think I did see it in the last update, was that the Department of Transport wasn't a department that fed into it, which I just thought was wild when access to you know, cheap transport, and we only got new figures from the National Transport Authority, I think yesterday that showed as a result of new bus routes, as a result of new initiatives in terms of reduced payments, uh, access to public transport and use of public transport has, has skyrocketed because why wouldn't you get a bus or a train if you could? Because it's cheaper than bringing your car. And most people in Ireland use their car because they don't really have much of a choice. So again, decisions that were made in terms of transport have, have paid off you know what I mean that, that you're able to sort of realize your climate action goals work towards your sustainable development goals all of those things by making sort of different decisions along the way I suppose that's when we look at the next steps we are currently in submission mode for a green paper on disability payments which I do agree with you I think that's a whole separate conversation but that is probably the natural that is my question is well what next you know we've had that Indicon report it has sat there. What is the next step? Is it that green paper or what else is going to happen in 2024, do you think? 
Good question. Yeah, just coming back to the the roadmap as well. One of the points that that we would keep making is so so, and it's not unique to this target, but for the poverty reduction target for disability, the target is there, but there's just no indication of how they're going to get there. Like, what are the steps to deliver that poverty reduction? And we've kind of regularly asked and in our submissions and all the rest. And I suppose one of the things that we've recommended over the past number of years is there needs to be a specific poverty reduction strategy for disabled people. And it needs to look at. So as you were saying, if you want to bring down your averages, you need to look at the different groups. Now, it's not just people with disabilities. We know the groups that it is. It's also single parents. It's other marginalized groups who aren't getting any level of support from the state we're not even going to start talking about direct provision and all of that right there has to be a comprehensive response it needs to be engaged with it is you know it's it's the the cost of disability report we were pushing for it to be published for a good period because we were almost slightly worried that that the report would stay internal or sit on a shelf as, mm-hmm. as happened with a lot of reports across government and in the state for a long time so in fairness to, to the department and to the government, it was comprehensively published and it gave us extraordinarily ev- good evidence to go back and advocate. <laughs> so it has been a really useful report in that regard. And also internationally, like I hear it from international colleagues when they understand and they see the report, it is being cited in other contexts because this is not unique to Ireland. Yeah. It is a case all over the world that this is an issue, possibly more of an issue here because both because of the cost of living at the moment and because of the the services mm-hmm. issue, because in other countries they have a more effective or functional set of be it the health service or the housing system or whatever it may be. In terms of where is it going or what are the next steps, the Department of Social Protection, in its response, when we've been asking about what happens now around the cost of disability report, says it's a much broader issue than ours. And in fairness, yeah. they are responsible for social protection so as as whether or not we would fully agree with this as far as they're concerned i i think the green paper is their response to the cost of disability report and 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 the green paper we're not going to go into the details obviously but it basically proposes a set of reforms to our social protection provision for disability in this country it's been quite controversial a lot of disabled people in the community have been very angry about parts of it because it proposes bringing in a tiered set of payments, which is kind of acknowledging the extra cost of disability. And some of the payments would increase, which is a positive, and taken on board some of our recommendations around the cost of disability payment. But it also proposes that some people would be deemed to have a moderate to high inverted commas capacity to work and the language in the green paper says that they would be required to engage with employment services. So there's a lot of fear that people will be pushed out to work, even though they don't feel physically or, or mentally or whatever it may be up to working. And, and it doesn't acknowledge all the structural barriers mm-hmm. to employment that are there. So from the department's point of view, this is their engagement with cost of disability. And they have also said that they're putting it up to other government departments by taking this step themselves, which I think is positive. There is a new action in the roadmap for social inclusion because the original <laughs> the original commitment in the roadmap for social inclusion was to publish the Indicon Cost of Disability Report. Possibly consider its implications, I'm not sure, but we were pointing out that, okay, that happened. Yeah. Publishing a report doesn't lead to any change, so th- there must be some action coming out of the report on foot of all the elaborate evidence that's provided. But I think the Department of acronyms, as some people I know have called it, the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, which is now the anchor department for disability across the board. Ultimately, it sits with that department as things stand. We know that that department have been very busy with a lot of other things that have been happening in the country in recent years, but there is a process happening at the moment. So Ireland ratified the UNCRPD in 2018, quite late, one of the latest EU countries to ratify it, but we did. And we had an existing disability strategy at that point. That strategy 
completed. There was a time lag again, but we the, the government is in the process of consulting on a new national disability strategy, which would be the first strategy that is focused on the implementation of the UNCRPD. And we know that the UNCRPD says that, that, that states commit to ensuring that disabled people have an adequate standard of living, have support with the extra costs of disability, and have a continuously improving standard of living as well. So those are the, the three things around income that are there in the UNCRPD. So I think the broader aspects of cost of disability, I think, and I really hope, are, are going to be addressed to some extent through that consultation process. And what needs to happen is there has to be a cross-departmental whole of government. So that you need to look at where the cost of disability aspects of transport. Many of us have been pointing out a lot of them over the years, so housing adaptation, health, but across across all of the departments. And, and I be believe there is some level of looking at this, but I it's not really very clear what exactly is happening. But that's that that strategy is being developed this year. And so it would be, yeah, it would be important that there is a cost of disability part of that strategy and that it commits to a set of actions. And what yeah, what what the what the Oireachtas Disability Group has been calling for is an action plan towards addressing all of the costs of disability within a period of three years. That is fairly ambitious, obviously, but but that's what that's what needs to happen. But meanwhile, as you said earlier on, we can't li leave people living on an incredibly meager income. Like even the green paper process is going to take a handful of years yeah. to be legislation involved, etc. So we can't just leave, leave people on completely inadequate supports. And another thing, in the survey of the 4,000 people who were relying on social protection, another question that I'm fairly sure came from civil society and disability organisations was, what would be most helpful um, to you in addressing the extra cost of disability? And there were three options, extra grants, extra services, or increased income. And the vast majority of people said increased income. Services as well, services mm -hmm. came second, but about 88% said that was the, there was a grading, like what would be most useful, useful, et cetera. But there was a huge, so we have to start addressing the income piece. We can't continue to expect people to, to live on, on incomes that are way below the poverty line. I suppose in our defence, had we done this episode when we said we would, we wouldn't be discussing the green paper because it didn't exist. <laughs> so, but, no, but like, I, I think that that's a conversation, I think, almost a separate one, but it flows on, as you said, from this. There's also a nerdy point about like, we're actually under, I know you know, like we're, we're underestimating the poverty rates. Like the ESR yeah. has, have shown that as well because it's an income-based measurement, you know, so because they don't factor that in. Much thanks to Flecta for her time, energy, passion and expertise. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any ideas, any comments you wanted to make, any future conversations you'd like us to have, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.